be up on the screen again today. I had quite a few comments from those who are watching us over the Internet, how this has been very useful and helpful to them to be able to see it. We tried to run the camera on the screen while they could see me doing the preaching and such, but the glare was such that all they got was a big white screen. And that's, uh, that's kind of annoying when that's what you want to emphasize. And we don't want everyone to come back blind because they've looked into a white screen for 45 minutes. So um, Evans figured out a great way that they actually just get the slides. And they don't actually see me at all, which is okay as far as I'm concerned. But uh, they get to see the slides up here when we put them up and, and uh, work from there. So... Join me again, Revelation chapter 12. I told you I had to break this into two pieces. And last week, I gave you the overview. And today, I want to give you the detail of this chapter. As we work our way through it, there's, there's something very important I want to stress today. Because the chapters we're in are very challenging chapters. Uh, they deal with a lot of pictures and signs and such like that. And it's easy in this section of, of God's Word to get uh, very confused and bogged down and trying to figure out what is what and who is who and why. Uh, and so I'm one, as you have come to know, I hope that I hold to a, a literal interpretation of God's Word. I'm trying to be very careful with it as we work through it. And this is one section of Scripture that I have noticed over the years, those who hold to a literal interpretation of Scripture, they change their entire technique in these chapters. So they may be literal in every other way until they come to these chapters, and then it's like they throw it out and they come up with a, a new hermeneutic to try to explain these chapters. And... Uh, that that's confusing to people because all of a sudden it, it doesn't make much sense as to what they're saying. And you have a lot of leeway to be very fantastic. That's the word for it, is fantastic interpretation because people tend to gravitate toward, give me something nobody's ever said before. And you can do that with these chapters, by the way. You can make up a lot of stuff. Um, but I do know that uh, there are those who, uh, like sailors, out on the, on the sea, and they're, they're going on a course. During rough waters, they have to trust their compass. And if they keep that in front of them, and they know where they're going, they can get through the rough waters. And, and those among us that are pilots would understand, too, that when there's clouds all about you, and you can't see where you're going, you have to trust your instrument panel uh, to get you through. Know that it's leading the right way. And here I say, when we're in these chapters... Trust the literal interpretation. Keep true to that approach of God's Word. And things start to make sense. And we're going to land in the right place, all right, when we get on the other side of this. So that's what I'm going to seek to do with you today. Romans chapter number, tw or Revelation chapter 12. Let's start, I'm going to read through it again. There's a handful of verses here in the chapter, about 17 of them, and uh, show you what we're working with. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, 
And she cried out, being in labor and pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her children were caught up to God, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there were no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of his testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced it with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that his, he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the, with two wings, the great eagle was given to the woman. Uh, two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the devil poured, or the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman when we went off to make war with the rest of her children who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, you ready? Okay, we're going to walk through this. I think this will help. Uh, I think so. It's coming. A couple of these slides to start with you saw last week. I'm just going to bring them up one more time. We are discussing the tribulation time historically in the book of Revelation. It's a seven-year period of time. It takes a lot of chapters to explain, and this isn't the only place in Scripture that does it. There are many other places that describe the tribulation period. It is yet to come. Believe it or not, you're not in it right now. That's good news, isn't it? Yes. Uh, but the tribulation is like a time no other this world has ever seen. It's meant, number one, to judge the world because of sin. This world does uh, sit under the wrath of God. It's not the permanent judgment. It's not the ultimate judgment. But it is a judgment that will take place, and it will be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Number two is to judge Israel and to bring them back to the Lord. And that is his program. And I will underscore that over and over. This chapter does, and we're going to do that. 
Number three is to show the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. I underscore that every single day I can. He is sovereign. And that's never going to change. And uh, this shows that very clearly as we go through the tribulation period and study it. He is in charge. He's in control. And finally, it shows to the church, that's us, it shows to the church that Jesus always keeps his promises. And we're going to walk through these things together. But you have seen that slide, and then you saw that this is the emphasis of chapter 12. Chapter 12 is to judge Israel and bring them back to the Lord, because Satan has a great hatred for Israel. And chapter 12 proves that. We're going to talk through that especially today. So, this is what we're looking at as we're studying this book. The key to the book of Revelation is that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. If we take our eyes off him, nothing will make sense. So we have to keep that at the forefront all the way through. And I've been telling you that for every chapter now, right? I'm gonna, I promise I'll keep that up all the way through. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about him. And it's written to the church. Most people do not call the book of Revelation an epistle. It follows the nature of an epistle. It is written to the church to encourage the church because they were facing difficult times when this book was written. Um, and I guess I would, if I was living back then, I'd start to wonder if the Lord really loved us because of the nature of what they were going through in that era when this book was written. But it is underscoring his love for the church. The first three chapters do that. The last handful of chapters do that. It's just a, a, the bookends show you what you should expect on the inside. It's about his love for his church. And I'll keep emphasizing that too. This is the time period we're talking about. This, this little red section here as to what to expect in our, in our uh, world yet to come. We are living in the church age. The book of Revelation outlines this very well, too, in the blue. But we are living right now, historically, in the church age. You are living in the same age as the Apostle Paul, and Peter, and Martin Luther, and John Calvin, and John Wesley, and all the others we name in history. You are still in that time period, same as they were. That's where we are. And we're living that out until the rapture of the church. That could come today which I hope you won't complain about if it does. It'd be nice, right? The rapture of the church will bring the end of God's plan for the church on this earth, in this dispensation. So we're looking forward to that. The tribulation starts after that. The seven-year period begins after that. That's where chapter 4 picks up and goes all the way through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. You can see the bulk of this book is about the tribulation period. And that's what we're studying. That's why we're stuck in there. We're in chapter 12. We're almost, you know, a little beyond halfway there. But uh, we're talking about the great tribulation. We get past that after the seven-year period. Jesus Christ comes again. And that's a powerful uh, display in this book. Chapter 21 through 6. He sets up his kingdom. And it's, for a thousand years, literally, here on this earth. Uh, following that, we have the final judgment, we have the new heaven and new earth, and we have the eternal reign of Christ on the other side. We get that in this book, too. So there's a lot yet to go. And it's a fascinating study. And I love these charts. They're very helpful. 
Um, if you've got that memorized, I hope so. Maybe we'll have to have a quiz on that someday. Uh, but um, that's what we're looking at. So this is where we are technically in the book. The red, the tribulation period we're studying, we are about halfway through it. Uh, we've seen the seal judgments. We have just about completed the trumpet judgments. There's one more yet to just unfold, and that's coming up in chapter 15, really, uh, or 16. And then the bold judgments will open up from there. And so we're right in the middle of the big three judgments that we've been studying. That's why it hasn't been a lot of happy tunes in our study over and over. We're dealing with some tough stuff. And we're seeing judgments take place. And most people get bogged down by it just because it's, it, it, it weighs heavy on us. And yet, these are still evidence that Jesus Christ is sovereign and that he loves his church and he always keeps his promise. And so we keep that to our mind. All right, that's my review for you just for a second. This is the challenging part I've been talking about. In these chapters that we are looking at, uh, we're looking at pictures, but I emphasize again, these pictures are about literal people and literal events. But pictures are used to help us describe that. And I emphasize that care must be taken. I use a big word here, dispensational viewpoint. All right? Dispensational viewpoint, that's an understanding of how God works. It's a tool to help us understand God's word by following a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, we use big words, don't we, uh, a program to understand how does God do this. But this is one of the points. There are three major points of dispensational viewpoint, and this one is very important. The distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. All right? That's very, very, very important. That's why in chapter number 12, I make that distinction. Because I believe whenever you get sloppy with this, you end up with sloppy answers. My, my theory is this. Took all this studying scripture in, in uh, seminary and stuff to come up with this. A sloppy hermeneutic leads to a sloppy theology. Actually, a sloppy hermeneutic leads to a dangerous theology. Because you misinterpret God's word. And we don't want to do that, do we? I don't think so. So, let's be careful. And you're going to see why I say that today. Because this is a passage that can really go wild. Chapter 12 is the story of Israel and Satan's hatred for Israel. I give you that just as a caption so you know where we're going to go. But I want to show you the route in which we're going to get there. Uh, allow me to be elementary, okay? If you don't mind, we'll take a few steps this way. We have three parts. We're going to talk about the signs. We're going to talk about the sense. And we're going to talk about the significance. Those three things are going to be our guides through this chapter. The signs, the sense, and the significance. Let's start with observation number one. And observation is always your first step. Observation is not interpreting. It's not coming up with, this is the answer, this is what it means, this is what it means, this is how I'd apply it. This is all it is, is this is what it says. I, I, I suggest that it's the hardest part of Bible study. 
In a hermeneutic just to say, this is what it says. This is what it says. I had a teacher teach me this in such a, a profound way. It was so simplistically said, but he, he went like this. He's teaching us the book of Revelation. And he'd come to a passage. He says, uh, a great sign appeared in heaven. And he'd stop and he says, what that means is, a great sign appeared in heaven. We sat there and said, really? We thought that was going to be something profound and stunning, and yet he was so simplistic with it. Because observation is that way, but we complicate it because we're quick to do step two or step three or step four. We want to get right to the you know, answers without working through... I'm sure that when you did math problems in school, you just didn't throw any answer down on the page, did you? But you worked through the math, I hope. You saw that you, you had to add or subtract or multiply, and you took the steps to get where you should, so you got the right answer. You didn't just write answers. So, what does it say? What does it say? What does it say? This starts with this. A great sign appeared in heaven, so we know it's a sign. Right? Okay. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. She cried out, uh, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Sign number one, it's real simple. A woman is in labor about to give birth. Is that pretty easy? Is that exactly what he said? That's the observation. That's it. A woman is in labor and about to give birth. Did we learn her name? No. So anything beyond that is speculation at this moment. It's just observation. That's sign number one. Sign number two is in verses 3 through 6 and 13 through 17. The big bulk of the book, or the chapter, is sign number two. There are only two signs in the whole chapter. And this sign, I'm not going to read it all again, but is basically this. There is a dragon that seeks to destroy the child, the woman, and her descendants. Right? Yes. That's all we've got so far, is there is a dragon there. It talks about a dragon, and it seeks to destroy the child, that's who she's carrying, the woman, and her descendants. That's what we see, sign number two. Now let's flesh it out a little bit, all right? Still, what does it say? Here's our storyline of the signs. This is the signs. Sign number one, a woman is in labor and about to give birth. Sign number two, a dragon is waiting for her to give birth, so that he may devour her child. The woman gives birth to a son who is to rule the world, and the child is caught up to heaven. There is a war in heaven between good angels and evil angels. These evil angels uh, lose and are thrown to the earth. The dragon is angry and knows his time is short. He persecutes the woman. But she is carried away from him for three and a half years into the wilderness. The dragon tries to destroy her, but he will be unsuccessful. The dragon then turns to wage war with the children of the women. That's chapter 12. Without all the stars and all those other things we talked about, that's the storyline, right? That's what it said. That's what's happening. Now, what's interesting is, that's not the end of the story. It keeps going into chapter 13. 
We'll get to that pretty soon, won't we? But this is the storyline. We've got a, a pretty, pretty intense story going on here. It's a woman and a dragon. All right? Storyline. That's where you start with observation. Don't fill in the blanks. You just write it out. That's what it says. That's what it says. Now, that's how we're going to have to keep our bearings when we start to find out what it means. The sense of it. When you interpret, you just say what it says. Believe it or not, interpretation is not magical. It's not some sort of spiritual hidden thing that somebody could pull out of some special techniques or such. It's just say what it says. That's what it means. That's what it says. So, when we start into it, you say, how do you work with this? You see, I, I got a label now for the woman. How did he come up with that? Boy, he's pretty clever. No, not really. I'm just comparing scripture to scripture. I'm just taking you to passages that say so. In verse 1 and 2, this woman symbolizes Israel. How do I know that? Well, several clues. I go back to Genesis 37, verse 9. He had another dream. That's Joseph, by the way. Go way, way back, huh? Joseph had a dream and related to it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his fathers rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you on the ground? Now, he didn't say that in this verse. He said the sun and the moon and the stars. How did his father interpret it? You're talking about us. Me and my wife. You're talking about our children. It was what God intended. Who is Jacob? God changed his name to Israel. All right? And these 12 children, which they represent 11 stars because you got to add Joseph. That's 12. Uh, were the children of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the story of Israel. God had described them that way once before in Scripture. And now when we get to chapter number 12, how are they described right away? Verse number 1, A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. You say, okay, so there's similarities here. How do we know it's still the same? Well, people have tried for years to describe, who is this? Who is this? Some people say, it's Mary. Why? Because she gives birth to a child. The child that's going to rule the world. That must be Jesus, right? And so they said, it must be Mary. But when did God take Mary and move her out and hide her for three and a half years in the wilderness? Not in Egypt. No. This, this is a picture of the tribulation period, remember? Is Mary still with us? No. So, by keeping our bearings, since we're talking about the tribulation period, it can't be Mary. It can't be Mary that we're talking about here. The sun and the moon referred to Jacob and Rachel, Joseph's parents. The stars and the woman's crown relate to the twelve sons of Jacob. She is not the church, either. This is not about the church. The picture is not about the church. Nor is it about that the church is her children. We're not looking at that. If I will, if I could say this to you, just take the whole church out of the story, okay? 
Let's move it out so we can see clearly what we're talking about. The description is that of Israel. The church, by the way, is already in heaven at this time. It wouldn't make sense to put the church in the tribulation period or describe them at this time because they're already in heaven. Make sense? It doesn't make sense. So be careful to keep what I call my dispensational distinction, Israel and the church. The church isn't here. It's all about Israel. Right. So, without going into a thousand other verses to keep proving the fact that this is Israel, if you just take my word for it for right now, and uh, if you want more study on it, I've got great things we can do about that. But I don't have time. Not this morning. So this is Israel. This one is much easier, isn't it? That the dragon is Satan. How do I know that? Verse number 9 tells me so. Look at how it's described. Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. The dragon is the serpent of old. When was he ever a serpent? Ah, Garden of Eden. Yes. Who is called the devil? Yes. He's also called Satan. Yes. And he deceives the whole world. Is that a pretty good thorough description? Okay, no mistakes there. The, the dragon is the devil. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. His desire, according to our story, is to destroy Israel, destroy the woman, her child, and her descendants. He has much authority. We won't go into the description of what does seven heads mean and ten horns and seven crowns, but it would represent probably a great amount of authority to do what he's going to do. Uh, he does control government things, too. He has a great deal of power on heaven and on earth, because it says in chapter 12, verse 4, he swept away a third of the stars that were from heaven. Now, I have to tell you, most of the time that's our proof text for a third of the angels fell with him. It doesn't say angels in this verse. It only says stars. It's quite possible it literally meant stars. And that would be very powerful indeed, to be able to take your tail and swish a third of the stars out of the heavens. Uh, that's quite possible. It might be angels, but it doesn't say it in that verse. All right? So just hold back on that. It's one of our proof texts, I know, but it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't carry real heavy evidence for that purpose. So we'll just hold off on that. We just know he has great power and authority. And he can do an awful lot on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Okay? We don't like that, do we? We don't like that. But that's what it's speaking about. All right, so... The child, this one might be kind of easy, verse number 5. It says, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Number one, he's a descendant of Israel. True? Yes. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Do we know any descendants of Israel who've been given that opportunity? Sarah knows. Ha. Here's what, look at it. This is the verse yet to come. But it's actually from Psalm 2, verse 9. So it's been around a long time. And it says, From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That is undeniably speaking of Jesus Christ. And something that he is designed to do 
He is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Do you think Satan likes that? No, especially that he controls the nations and the world governments, and they're going to be removed from him. So there's a promise here. This child is about to be born by this woman named Israel. All right? We're okay so far? The woman, Israel, is protected from the dragon. Between verses 5 and verse 6, there's at least 2,000 years. If you want to go chronologically. Because in chapter 5, it talks about that. Or verse number 5, it talks about that. The woman fled into the wilderness. No, verse 5. She gave birth to a son. That's Jesus. A male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And the child was caught up to God and to his son. That goes all the way from the Gospels all the way up until the time of the millennial period. Between his birth and his second coming and his ruling as the king of the universe. <laughs> the king of kings and lord of lords. So we have about 2,000 years represented in verse number 5 alone. And verse number 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days, or three and a half years. Notice, it's the woman who fled. It doesn't say the woman and the child, does it? It's just the woman who fled. And she's being protected in a place prepared by God. Now, verse 7 through 12 are events that happened... It's kind of like a flashback, if you will, or an explanation, if you will, of why she had to flee. Okay? Why did she have to run? Why did she have to hide? What was going on? So let's take a look at that and then come back to verse 6. Alright? Verse 7 through 9. First of all, Satan was defeated in heaven. That's what started verse number 7. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels. Who's Michael? He's an archangel. We could go to a lot of passages to prove that. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels. Now we have a reference to the dragon having angels. We have another name for those guys. We call them demons. Uh, there was a war being waged. You know what? It's kind of a strange amphitheater. Isn't it? According to the text, it's happening in heaven. Ephesians will back that up when it talks about that uh, we fight against principalities, powers, and all that in heavenly places. It's there. But they're having a war, and it just so happens that Michael and his angels win because the demons and Satan were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who's called the devil and Satan. He's, he's thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Some people say, well, that took place a long time ago. I don't think it has taken place yet. I still think that he has access to the throne in heaven. That may not make you too happy. We always say, can't wait to get to heaven. Guess who's roaming around up there too? Oh, I'm sorry to say it. But in the tribulation, he'll be thrown out. But don't worry about him. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. All right, that's good news. But nevertheless, he's thrown out. He's thrown out. And so we have his defeat in heaven. He comes down to the earth and he's quite mad. But heaven is rejoicing. Oh, they're having a great time. 
I heard a loud voice in heaven, verse 10 says. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down and he accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. I underscore something. One simple question. Who are these people? Most of the time we say, well, that's the church. Isn't our rule today? Don't put the church in the story. In the context, it's talking about Israel. Here's what's interesting. The accuser of our brethren? That would mean Jews can be saved. Wouldn't it? Yes. Are Jews being saved in the tribulation period? Yes. Are they being accused by the enemy? Yes. Does he want to destroy them? Yes. Are they martyrs? Yes, they are. The scripture is absolutely full of the fact that the tribulation period is to bring the Jews back to a relationship with the Lord. And individually, some of them do come to know him as their savior. And by the way, they're saved by the very same stuff you're saved by. Because there's salvation in no other name than Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and nobody comes to the Father but through him, no matter what time of period we're talking about. The tribulation is still true. These are the ones who are being saved. And they're looking at this world and say, this is a terrible place. We're being, you know, attacked by the devil himself. And when he's thrown out of heaven, everybody rejoices. So the heavens are rejoicing. But there's another problem to the coin. The earth's in trouble. We talk about those who are rejoicing first. The context is Israel. The Jews are saved. They're becoming saved during that time. They're keenly aware of the coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, where he's going to rule with a rod of iron. They're martyred for their faith. They know these things are coming. Satan can easily accuse the church believers, but since they're already in heaven, what is his accusations for? You see, if we, if we say, he's accusing the brethren, and we say, that's the church, they're already in heaven. They're already dressed as the bride of Christ. They've already had the reward ceremony. They're standing there glorified bodies. What's he accusing them of? There's nothing to accuse them of. In the tribulation, he's accusing the Jews. Why? His attention is toward the Jews. He's continually accusing them to perhaps change God's mind about his plan for them. There's still time. Maybe I could stop God's plan now. Make Israel look really bad. Do you know what? Have you read the Old Testament before? Does Israel look good? Man, it's, it's a nightmare at times to read through that. Going through it chronologically, you can get depressed in a hurry. Saying, what's wrong with these people? I think Drew had a good name for them. Knuckleheads, is that the word you used? Um, what, what, is, what is with these people? They always seem to go against the Lord. Satan knows that. He says, what's the point of holding on to these people? They sin against you. They sin against you. They sin against you. They're still doing it. He's accusing. That's why I think if we keep our bearing, we see what he's doing here. He's trying to manipulate 
God into destroying his own people. He doesn't want God's people to survive this. Context is Israel, still. So he's angry about his defeat. He's thrown down to the earth. And woe to the earth, it says, in verse number 12. And the sea, because the devil has come down, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. There's only three and a half years left. To finish his project, to stop God's perfect plan, where Israel comes back to know him. I'll show you the reason for that in a few minutes. But this is his plan, a short time yet to go. In verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Why is she still there if that's Mary? It's not. We're talking about the tribulation period. It's Israel. He persecutes Israel. Because she gave birth to the male child. Jesus. So he's going to keep persecuting her. Israel. Over and over and over again. Okay, you got the sense so far? That's important. A little bit more. The woman Israel is protected from the dragon. I told you in verse 6 that she was... She fled to the wilderness, a place prepared by God. Look at verse 14. It says practically the same thing, but a little more details added to it. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. These are saying the same thing. God protects her in a wilderness for three and a half years. That's the last part of the tribulation period. And that is the worst part, the time of Jacob's trouble, is what Scripture calls it. It's a terrible era for them. But this, verse 7 through 12 tells you the reason for this. That's the same event. Okay, now we're back to the storyline. She's running. She's hiding. She's in the wilderness between a half years. So Satan is going to attempt still. The, Satan, the serpent poured water out like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Who is her? Israel. And the earth helped the woman, Israel. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And he said, okay, that one's kind of weird. When did that happen? I can't remember a river like that. I can't remember an event like that. I would suggest something to you, and I don't have a thousand percent evidence to prove this, but I think when you start talking about floods and such, and the attempt to destroy something, you're not talking about one minor event. You're talking about a lot of attempts, a lot of different ways. And if you look at the whole picture of things, Satan is true to his nature. He has been flooding Israel with destruction all the time. All the time. He was enraged with the woman. Went off to make war with the rest of her children. That's Israel. Who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Still, I hold to believing Jews in the tribulation. And the tribulation will not be less than what he's ever done to the Jews. Let's just give you a small history lesson here. You ready? Let's get examples of how Satan has attempted this. In the whole Abrahamic covenant, God says, Abraham, I choose you. You're going to have descendants like the stars of the sky, like the sea, the sand of the seashore. Uh, Abraham says, what about Eliezer? He's just my servant, but, you know, he's part of my house. Can't he fulfill the promise? God said, no. How about Ishmael? Remember that story? Let's try with Ishmael. Let's fulfill the story. God said, no. It's through your son, Isaac. 
Then we come up 400 years later. Israel's in Egypt. You say, okay, they went there under good start with Joseph, but how did that go after a couple hundred years? They became slaves, right? And by the way, by the time you open up the book of Exodus, chapters 1 and 2, they're trying to get rid of who? The male children that are being born. Because Pharaoh fears that Israel is going to get too great. You know, if you get rid of all the male children, who do the women marry? Egyptians. What happens to the race? It's gone. It's gone. There's another attempt. Go all the way into Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. Assyria, getting pretty big for their britches, came down and went all the way up to the neck of Judah and said, we're going to take you too. Great story. Hezekiah lays out their plan in front of God and says, look what he, look what he says about you, God. He's, he's accusing you of all these things. He's, he's equating you with all the gods of the world. Show him who you really are. And God did an incredible event there. But if Assyria had its way, Israel would not have existed. They would have annihilated Jerusalem and it would have been done. It didn't work. That's Hezekiah's story. Esther, what did Haman want to do? He wanted all the Jews killed. He even had a law, right? He set up a law to destroy them all. That's quite a story. You've got to read Esther, chapter 3. Jesus himself, what did Herod try to do with the babies after the wise men left? Did he realize that they didn't tell him where he was? Kill them all. What if he had gotten a hold of Jesus then? End of story. What about the cross? You say, but Jesus came here on purpose to die on the cross. Yes. Who was it calling for him to die on the cross? Who were the loudest voices? The Jews, especially the religious leaders, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So they thought, well, let's get rid of him. So put him on the cross. Okay, fine. Put him on the cross. Then what did they say? Come down, come down, come down, come down. If you're really God. If they didn't put him on the cross, it wouldn't have fulfilled God's plan. If he came down from the cross, it wouldn't have fulfilled God's plan. So they were on both sides of the story. They wanted him crucified, and then they wanted him to come down from the cross, as if that would have been the solution. All of that would have messed up the plan terribly, right? Destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Romans wiped it out, said, they're gone, they're gone. And you know what? For Nearly 2,000 years, that's what it looked like. The Jews were not on the map for 2,000 years almost. A.D. 70. Persecution of the church by Rome. All through the A.D. 60s. You speak of Nero, you speak of others in those day and days. Uh, they wanted to eliminate the Jews. Especially Christian Jews. Put them, persecute them. What they do with Paul. They killed him. What did they do with Peter? They killed him. Leaders of the Christian church. There was persecution left and right all the time. Jews were a big part of that too. What about this story? Hitler's concentration camps. We're stuck moving to our modern era a little bit. Hitler's concentration camps. What if that succeeded? There'd be no Jews. Then who does Jesus come and set up his kingdom for? It'd be gone. 
What happened this year? May 14, 1948. Israel became a nation. What happened a few hours later? A war broke out. And what was the point of the war? Let's wipe them off the map. Instant attack. Because they were declared a, a literal nation. We have that. A few years later, almost 20, 1967. They tried it again. Six days, not much time for a war. We know the story. Do you know the story? Have you ever read the history of all these things? Fascinating. You cannot read those without understanding God is sovereign. See it with that light and you say, wow, look at what God still does. 1973. Oh, let's attack them during their, their most solemn holiday, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Let's get them while they're not looking. Let's attack them. In that. And do you know what happened there? That's a good history lesson, too. Who won that war? It was, again, it was Israel because of the providence of God. I believe so. Guess what? There's another battle yet to come. At least, at least the big one is on its way, called the Battle of Armageddon. Israel's opponents will taste victory. They will have the assumption that it's all over. Jerusalem surrounded. They've just been broken into. We've attacked them. We've conquered them. We have won. Read Zechariah chapter 13, 14. And they declare, we are winners. We are winners. We did it. And yet they don't realize Jesus comes at that moment. Just like he promised. Let me give you the big picture. You just saw it here. Satan has attempted to take Israel out of the story for a long time. A long, long time. I don't know what you call a flood, but to me it's like, whoa. He has been intense. And so whatever that verse was speaking of, that he pours out a river out of his mouth like a flood to destroy her, that's not unlike his characteristic. I don't know what the event will technically be, but I do know that this is his desire all along. He has tried to destroy everything that God has planned. When God made this earth, he decided, let's make a mess of it. He came down and tempted Adam and Eve. When Jesus came, he wanted to make a mess of it. And he spent a lot of time, remember, through Pharisee and Sadducee and everybody else, to defeat the plan of God through Jesus Christ. He's done that with the church. He does that with Israel. He is always trying to destroy the plan that God has it. And they're gonna, he's not done yet with that. He's still trying to destroy what God has done. God chose Israel. I want you to know this. And I'm not glorifying Israel and say, wow, is that a special group? It's special because God chose them. This is what he said. You are a holy, that means set apart people, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, but you were the fewest of all the people. And that's not the point either. But because the Lord loved you. Stop with that right there. Israel is not chosen by God because of some great thing they have done. Some great way that they look. Some great way that they live. Or anything of that nature. We have the evidence that they have everything about them that you probably wouldn't like. Especially if you put your affection on them. God loves them. Underscore that and never forget it. God chose them because he loves them. He loves them. 
And he is going to keep his oath, which he swore. He swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all. The Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. All this is a display of God's love for his people. He loves these people. He's faithful to these people. He will keep his word about these people. So why do you think Satan wants to mess that up? It attacks the very character of God. So what is our book about? It's about Jesus Christ. Yes, he loves this church. Why do we rejoice in this chapter? Is there cause for rejoicing? The woman's protected. The baby lived. The baby's going to rule. Satan was defeated. Is that enough to say, thank you, Lord? Yeah. It shows even the church to us today, God is going to keep his promise. Even when Satan in full force wants to thwart it. God will win. I love that. I love that picture. I wanted you to see that. That's chapter 12. You see? It's just a picture of Israel and the church. Not, not Israel, and, Israel and the devil. And that's the conflict. And the end result, God gets the glory. So we're to rejoice in this. Because it encourages us. I hope it does. I hope you are encouraged by this. Heavenly Father, your word is wonderful. I love looking at the big picture and seeing how great you are. What you have done, how you're doing it, what you intend to do. You will keep your promise. I praise you for that. We can trust in that today because you'll keep your promises toward us too. And all these things that we read of yet to come for us, the church, is going to happen. Just as you said. Just as you promised. And we look forward to that. We have great confidence knowing these things. And I pray that you lift up our hearts and encourage us by it today. Thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the love that he gave to us. The life that he died for us. That we might have life in him. By faith in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And what a glorious thing you have done for us. We praise you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.